Welcome to the PA Books podcast. PA Books is a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. This program features interviews with authors of books on Pennsylvania people, history, sports, business, nature, and politics. While the focus is always on Pennsylvania, topics like the Revolutionary War, the Battle of Gettysburg, the Industrial Revolution, the coal and steel industries, and authors like John Updike, David McCullough, and John Grogan have a universal appeal. We hope you enjoy this podcast. This week on PA Books, Barbara Gannon and Christian Keller, authors of Pennsylvania, a military history. Our guests today are Barbara Gannon and Christian Keller, and they are the authors of this book, Pennsylvania, a Military History. Barbara, we'll start with you. This covers a lot of ground, and you're a historian and have covered probably a lot of this but in the past, but how often when you were writing this book did you come across something that made you say, well, what do you know? Well, I have to say what really surprised me, as it always does, is World War I. Because it's the centennial, I can't say I was the greatest World War I scholar, but lately I've been getting very deeply into World War I. And World War I always surprises me because Americans don't talk about it, they don't like to remember it. So many interesting things happened. Uh, Pennsylvania was so much center to it. And I have to say, World War I always surprises me more than anything else. How was Pennsylvania central to it? Well, you had one of the great divisions here, the 28th Infantry Division. You had, even before the war, the Pittsburgh Steel turned out shells for the artillery, which were so vital to that artillery-heavy war. The Pennsylvania Naval, the Philadelphia Naval Yard, many women in Pennsylvania belonged were Navy Yeoman X, female, uh, because Philadelphia Navy Yard was so nearby. So, and there's the religious element of Germans who kept their language and the socialists who opposed the war, and it goes on and on. And uh, there were African-American units in uh, World War I, you write in the book? Well, there were two primary divisions, the 92nd and the 93rd. The 92nd stayed with the United States Army Expeditionary Force, and the 93rd actually worked with the French. Very, very few Americans realized the longest, hardest fighting regiments in the United States Army in World War I were African-American regiments who fought with the French. And you, you mentioned the 28th Division. Does that did they fight together? I mean, did they keep, keep all Pennsylvanians together when they were over there in Europe? Well, mostly. What they did was they mobilized the division. And, of course, you have to bring it up to war's time strength. You bring other people in, whether they be draftees or enlistees. But as a unit, and, for example, the general, I think, might have been replaced by a regular. The regular army tends to do that. But the 28th Division of that is primarily a Pennsylvania unit. And what were they involved with? Oh, gosh, 28th. I mean, they are the hardest. They were one of the hardest fighting divisions overall, if not the most successful National Guard division. They were involved in all the major battles, including probably the most decisive battle Americans have never heard of, the Meuse-Argon. Uh, they were incredible. They were there for a very long time, and they did a tremendous job, and that's why Pershing called them the Iron Division. So really, one of the most successful National Guard divisions, which is a hard thing to be since you're not a regular, was the Pennsylvania Division. 
And they were involved in World War II also. Also in World War II. By that time, it took longer to train, fewer Pennsylvanians. It wasn't as direct a line, but still, it was World War II. Christian, you've had some time to think about this. What in this book caused you to say, well, son of a gun? Well, I'll take us back to the uh, colonial period and uh, our unfortunately deceased co-author, Bill Penzack, uh, began the work on the colonial chapters because that was his specialty. And uh, as I was uh, revising and, and adding in my material for some of those co-authored early chapters, what surprised me the most was actually uh, the legacy of the French and Indian War and how it actually continued to fester long after the fighting between the Indians and the French and the American colonists and the British were over. Uh, the Conococheek Valley, for instance, uh, not so far from uh, you know, modern-day Shippensburg and Mercersburg, uh, where there was a lot of uh, um, unhappiness with the uh, colonial assembly and uh, how there were actual ambushes by uh, backwoodsmen living in that area uh, with uh, caravans heading out to the western part of the state to uh, garrison forts and to uh, you know, supply the, the outposts that were still out there. And this is after Pontiac's Rebellion. So it, in many ways, it kind of set up the unrest that will lead into the revolution. I want to ask you about that, because you write, the Battle of Fort Loudoun was the first confrontation between Americans and British troops in the years leading up to the revolution. The only reason is not better known is that historians more familiar with events in Boston have downplayed the importance of frontier expansion as a cause of the revolution as opposed to taxation and disputes over commercial regulation. So Pennsylvania got shortchanged in its uh, run-up to the Revolutionary War? Well, not exactly. Uh, there were just so many folks out in the back areas that felt that the, uh, the colonial assembly and especially King George and, uh, you know, Parliament over in England were not representing them and, and their interests. And moreover, they sensed chicanery was going on with the local authorities that represented the crown and represented the assembly in Philadelphia. And it gave those two institutions a bad name, as, as uh, we write in the book. And it started a great deal of unrest that's going to uh, spill over into outright rebellion later on. So Pennsylvania has its version of what New England went through uh, prior to the Revolution. Nothing like the Boston Massacre, but uh, this, this unrest and this, this, this feeling of, of uh, being shortchanged uh, definitely is evident. What was the Battle of Fort Loudoun? Uh, well, it was essentially a, a, a skirmish um, among uh, local bushwhackers and settlers and uh, uh, a supply group uh, composed of British and, and others who were trying to head west along a route that was believed to be uh, that was believed to be illegitimate and they thought the supplies that were being carried were, were illegitimate uh, and uh, taxes weren't being paid respect was not being paid uh, and uh, right-of-way wasn't being respected and all of this rankled the locals and they believed that uh, this was unfair and they rebelled against it. Where was the Pennsylvania colonial government in all this? Well, it depends how far back you want to go on this, Brian. Um, if you take it back to the pre-French and Indian War, the earlier colonial wars, and then take it forward from there, we, we see this constant tension uh, between the backcountry and the eastern counties dominated by the Quakers and the Quakers dominated the assembly, but then there's this, this third wheel called the Proprietary Party, or the Proprietor, which represented William Penn. And the governor then is caught in between the assembly and William Penn's uh, descendants uh, in how to broker deals with the backcountry. And there's always this issue of money. Who's going to pay 
for appropriations to defend the frontier during these various wars against the French and the Indians. And it's, it's a theme uh, that, uh, that Bill and I explore in our colonial chapters. Were the proprietary chapter, was that Quakers and pacifists, or had they moved away from that by then? Uh, the Quakers were still very prominent in Pennsylvania politics well up and, until and during the Revolution, but they started to lose power during the French and Indian War, and there were more and more non-Quaker representatives to the Pennsylvania Assembly. And some of the, the younger Quakers who came in uh, to the Assembly were more willing to vote money for colonial defense than their forefathers were. I want to ask a couple things, and, and we may jump around here because there's so much interesting stuff in the book, but um, uh, there was, you mentioned uh, the, the Colonial Assembly, and, and uh, there's a chapter called The War of Jenkins' Ear, and for all odd names for a war. You say in there, Pennsylvania's Quaker merchants entered the fray when they allowed Governor George Thomas to authorize their ships manned by non-Quakers to serve as privateers that attacked Spanish and later French shipping. So the Pennsylvania colonial government was authorizing pirates to go out and attack? In, in essence, yes. And it's yet another example of the somewhat nefarious activities uh, that the uh, pacifist Quaker assembly would engage in uh, when they didn't want to actually vote for arms or ammunition uh, or uh, uh, try to appropriate troops per se, then they would cloak it in language such as uh, funds for, quote, other grain. Uh, and uh, this was also cloaked, this idea of arming privateers. Uh, everything was done to provide a semblance of uh, respect for Quaker values uh, in the Quaker-dominated assembly, but they came to realize the necessity for defense and they would then uh, use the appropriate language to ensure that uh, mores were upheld. Well, your book quotes Benjamin Franklin because he was trying to get the Colonial Assembly to appropriate money for defense and they wouldn't do it. And he added humorously that if all else failed, the Assembly could vote to purchase a fire engine, then nominate him as Committee of One to purchase it and buy a great gun, which is certainly a fire engine. Correct, uh, which is just archetypal, archetypal uh, Franklin. I mean, this is so typical. Uh, Franklin could see through the veneer uh, of the Quaker assemblyman. He knew the game, but he also had to play in the game as a very important early political figure in, in the Commonwealth's history. And uh, he knew how to massage the right people at the right time. And he himself became one of the most ardent advocates for colonial defense uh, with his association and, and other projects. What was the War of Jenkins' Ear? Well, it was, uh, it became King George's War over here. It started over in Europe. There was a, a British uh, sea captain who was boarded by, I believe, a, a, Spanish, uh, a Spanish ship. Uh, there was a fight. Uh, the ear was cut off, and it was sent in a bottle to England. Uh, and there was an outrage uh, in England over this uh, assault against one of His Majesty's uh, uh, officers and uh, the British and the Spanish went to war. It, it spread over here, uh, as a lot of the colonial wars did, except the actual French and Indian Wars, we call it. Now, that one began here, uh, as we write, in Pennsylvania, in fact. But this Jenkins ear quickly became known as King George's War. Uh, I have to, while I'm on this page, there's one more, and that's Cresap's War or Cresap's War? Cresap's War. Cresap's War. Um, and uh, can you explain what that was? Well, uh, Cresap was a Marylander who had been authorized by the Maryland uh, Assembly uh, to 
state claims above what was later to be known as the Mason-Dixon line. And uh, Cresap was ardent in his attempts to claim this area for Maryland. Uh, he was a bit of a bunctious, uh, rambunctious fellow, and uh, the Pennsylvanians who were at this point going across the Susquehanna River and settling ran into him and ran into the Maryland claim. And uh, there was some skirmishing between uh, Maryland and Pennsylvania colonials in this pre-French and Indian War. And it, you know, war is probably a big name to call it, but it was, there was bloodshed. Uh, there were some casualties. Cresap ends up getting captured by the Pennsylvanians and taken back to Philadelphia in chains, ultimately is released. And this border dispute leads into the actual founding of the line between Pennsylvania and Maryland, the famous Mason-Dixon line. Without Cresap's war, that uh, delineation would have never occurred. Well, I have to read this part on Cresap's war. You say, Cresap was assisted in his struggle by his formidable wife who fought at his house and rode on horseback by his side. When Cresap was jailed, she built both a house and some flatboats to take possession of Hendrick's land. When Pennsylvanians tried to recapture it, she rode to the nearby militia camp and returned at their head to drive them off. Quite a woman. Quite, quite a lady uh, and uh, representative of uh, you know, what we see throughout Pennsylvania military history, which is it is not male specific. Uh, there's a great deal of involvement by women, especially in the 20th century uh, in the chapters Barb wrote and, and were responsible for primarily. But we see it the whole way back to the founding of the colony especially on the frontier, uh, where every individual mattered, uh, regardless of their gender. What I think is interesting is uh, you were talking about earlier how, you know, you have this whole idea of New England, and it's always been the model. But in a lot of ways, Pennsylvania is much more appropriate. Because one, you uh, have this, and uh, Chris mentioned it, the association, I wrote an article about this, and it's very interesting. The idea was the Quakers would not have a militia. And so the people who came later, many who were Presbyterians, wanted defense because they're out in the frontier and it's all well and good to be safe in Philadelphia. But even Philadelphia itself, because it was a port city and the colonies were always being dragged into these King George, King's Anne's, King's everybody's war, European war, <laughs> they were always being dragged in. There was no even defense for Philadelphia. So one of the things Ben Franklin did was they had a lottery to buy guns. That's how they bought guns to defend Philadelphia. They had this lottery. Oh, but, to raise money to buy yes, the guns? Yes, that's how they bought the guns, because they, they couldn't get it any other ways. And then they created all these association units, mainly on the frontier. They were like volunteer militia units. Well, if you look at America, I mean, everyone thinks the Minuteman who defends their town is the American military history. But in a lot of ways, it's volunteer militia. It's people in the community who, are, who volunteer to defend which is really much more American military history than the militia, this entity they always talk about in New England where everyone was bound to defend the town. That's not the way we really actually uh, functioned much. In a way, Pennsylvania is much closer to how, particularly when there's a real war, America gets sort of enthusiastic volunteers and creates units, volunteer units, which you talk about a lot in, in, in the Civil War. So um, the idea, the Pennsylvania tensions between the backwoods, which is much more um, typical of America, the people who want to expand west, a lot of the things that went on here are actually more typical of how things are going to go than this New England model, 
uh, a, a model rested in what was originally Puritan and Congregationalist and tight home and tight towns and communities. Really, it's more the mixed multitude of Presbyterians and Germans and Quakers, all very diverse and all somewhat at each other's throats, is really much more like how we became than all of those New Englanders who pretty much agreed on everything, or even Southerners who you know, had a certain um, unity there. I mean, here you have Pennsylvania is a very diverse uh, population with diverse religious and political views that all have to come together at various times to defend their communities, or not, and say it's wrong to do that. So I, I think Pennsylvania is a very typical and a much more interesting military place than a lot of other places. We were unique. Uh, we were early on uh, an immigrant melting pot in the Commonwealth, and that is not going to change from the colonial period, the first settlers, uh, the whole way up into the 20th century. And this is one of the themes that runs through our book because we want everybody to understand that this, uh, th this, this culture of immigrants, which is what Pennsylvania develops over time, affects our military fortunes and affects how we raise troops. Uh, how we fight those troops, how those troops are led, uh, and then the civil-military relations between those troops and, and uh, the political leaders uh, in the colony and later the state. And uh, we cannot, I think, underestimate the significance of this diversity uh, between all the different ethnic groups, the Germans, the Scots-Irish, the, the British Quakers, uh, and then later 20th century immigrations, uh, uh, and then the, the significance of all the different uh, religious denominations and even within the Germans themselves there's about six or seven different denominations all of them have different backgrounds and scruples and it makes for a very interesting if complex story how was it governable well uh, if you examine the early history of the colony there was some difficulty especially regarding the the backcountry uh, and uh, the frontier as it expanded and and this again is representative of what's going on throughout the United States, the young country, and uh, you know before that the colonies. Uh, so the back country was very hard to govern. First of all, second, I would argue uh, that it takes time for the assembly to evolve, which, as I mentioned earlier, it does as newer members start to come in and replace the older, more staid Quaker uh, assemblymen. Uh, also, when independence comes, and uh, Pennsylvania is a state in the new union. That changes a lot of things. When we get a state constitution, uh, which you know, provides uh, certain laws and certain uh, uh, regulations for the formation of troops, for the maintenance and the upkeep of the militia, how and under what circumstances can they be used, uh, we, it does start to change when you start to have, have uh, Pennsylvania evolve as a state within the new federal union. So there's kind of a demarcation line before independence and after independence. But even during that colonial period, you see an evolutionary process. Well, I have to ask you, maybe one of the steps in the evolution is you, you use the phrase fighting Quakers. And that seems to be an oxymoron. Well, again, some of these Quakers came to realize they had to actually defend the Commonwealth or they would lose power. It was about power, as it generally is in anything related to uh, politics and, uh, and, and to uh, military history. And the Quakers wanted to retain power as long as they could. And one way they could do that was to ensure that uh, uh, there were funds appropriated by whatever means necessary and under whatever 
verbal auspices could be used to ensure that the, that the, uh, the colony was defended. And, and they came to understand, even if they weren't taking guns up themselves, that others needed to. And they came to understand that they needed to pay for that. How did this book come about? How did you two get involved with it? And you, you tell a little bit about Bill Pensack, who was on this program quite a few times. Well, what happened was Bill got in touch with us, and at least with me, he got in touch with me and Chris, and said that he had done up to a certain point in the book, and really he wanted someone who might be a little more familiar. He had drafted up to a certain point with the later period. So Chris sadly stole Civil War from me and did Civil War. But that's all right, not bitter. Um, I did a, so I did like the War of 1812 and the Mexican War and after Civil War and the 20th century. So what had happened is we were all had done our drafts and then Bill unfortunately passed away suddenly and it was great. Bill Pensack was a marvelous man, uh, beloved by all who knew him, particularly by graduate students. We were both graduate students at Penn State. He had uh, helped us so much, there are no words. So we decided we would finish it for him. If you knew Bill, there are no words. He was a magnificent man, he was a magnificent teacher, and we ended up finishing it for him. It became a labor of love. Uh, this was not a project either Barb or I were uh, contemplating initially, but when Bill approached us and asked for help, what do you say to your old mentor from graduate school? Yes, thank you, I'll be happy to do this. And in the process, we came to learn a great deal more about Pennsylvania's military history than we thought that we already knew. Uh, because we're both graduates of the history uh, graduate program at Penn State, we did immerse ourselves in all our Pennsylvania history uh, during that time in our lives. And we've since gone on to continue our research and our writing in our different uh, areas of interest. Uh, but this book, in many ways, brought us back to where we started. And it, 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 for me at least, felt like it was kind of coming full circle after having studied under Bill up at Penn State. And uh, he was a fabulous mentor and is very greatly missed by many. Well, in putting this book together, it, you could write whole books about every, practically every paragraph. How did you take, say, the Civil War and boil it down to the, the length that you needed for this book? Civil War guy? Or the War of 1812. Well, the War of 1812. Okay, here's the thing. Now, my, and, and I had a different, I, my chapters had a little bit of a different challenge. The early ones people have not written about as much. Like, for example, the War of 1812 on the ground, America, United States, militias do a terrible job, and no one wants to admit it. Everything good happens at sea. So happily, I at least had Lake Erie to talk about, which is good, because otherwise you just write, and then the militia did a poor job, as always, and eventually we'll let Washington be burnt. Okay. Was there any fighting in, on land in Pennsylvania during the just War of Just sort of the skirmish, the frontier stuff. Um, really. So we don't do well in, World War, uh, in the War of 1812. Then you had the Mexican War. Again, you have some volunteer units, which is really the way we're going to go with both the Mexican War and... The Civil War, people who just who are enthusiastic, who want to go to war to fight, um, who are young, uh, and they want to go to Mexico for whatever adventure. So they end up in these volunteer units, and the point there is volunteer units aren't the answer either because I just talk about the Pennsylvania volunteer experience is not so much war, 
but very typical of the Mexican War, which is you die of disease. Because you're ill-trained, you're in a more tropical environment, so I could use that. But again, people don't write about Mexican War, the Pennsylvania involvement. So the same thing happened, but what Bill, and, and after the war, is Bill had given me a outline, and one of the things he did, he had some very important points to talk about, which I all hit. Medal of Honor winners. It isn't so much in the later years about Pennsylvania units, except for the 28th, but in the 20th century particularly, Pennsylvanians serve in all capacities. But how to shift the war to both Pennsylvanians as individuals, but also the broader society, whether it be industrialization, African Americans, to, to shift the, to, to the Pennsylvania experience as opposed to Pennsylvania units, which you have in the Civil War, but it's not so much as time goes on. So on one hand, there really isn't as much as one would think on some of these, like Pennsylvania and World War I. I'm actually editing a couple of editions of Pennsylvania history on World War I. There isn't really anything. There is not as much as you ever think on Pennsylvania and World War I. So you kind of have to piece it together. So people don't think as time goes on in states, in military history. They do in the Revolution. They do in the Civil War. So on, on one hand, my challenge was sometimes, okay, what was said about Pennsylvania and the Mexican War. And then you go back and you find volunteer diaries. And that's about it, because they don't approach the war that way. That's 100% true. Uh, you will find, as we hit the 20th century, throughout the United States, uh, there's a more nationalistic historiography, you know, the, the, how historians write history. Uh, more nationalistic in the sense of it is the nation's wars in the 20th century, World War I, World War II, Vietnam, and so forth. Uh, before that, and, and I would take this even up to the Spanish-American War, there's a great deal of allegiance to states and affiliation with states among uh, Americans uh, writ large and among the historians who write about these wars. So, so you know, Barb definitely had her work cut out for her to do uh, the, the 20th century wars but especially uh, the earlier wars like the Mexican War and the, uh, um, and the War of 1812. With the Civil War, something I've studied a great deal uh, regarding Pennsylvania's involvement in it, that was easier because there is a great deal out there about Pennsylvania's involvement, plus we're host to quite a few major events during the American Civil War. Uh, and uh, uh, I explore that throughout those chapters. I want to jump to World War II because uh, it was uh, not a Pennsylvania-focused thing, but Pennsylvania had two great contributions. One is George Marshall, and the other is the Jeep. Can you talk about each of those? Well, actually, what's amazing is that we had a lot of senior generals. That's what surprised me. Remember you talked about what surprised. I hadn't realized that the Army Air Force practically existed because of senior commanders. George Marshall was the architect of victory, in some ways the architect of peace. He was FDR's senior military advisor. He was also an amazing person in that Roosevelt said, I can't make give you the supreme allied command job because I need you here. And as a per general, George Marshall must have thought, oh my God, the one thing in your entire life you would have wanted to lead forces against this great evil he's not going to get. He has to stay somewhat behind the scenes. So he's a Pennsylvanian and he is absolutely a magnificent man. 
And then after the war comes up with the Marshall Plan, which does so much for Europe. Now he was Eisenhower's boss during the war, right? Yes, he was everyone's boss, pretty much. Um, we don't have a modern Joint Chiefs of Staff then. If we did, he'd have been probably the equivalent of the Chairman of Joint Chiefs of Staff, if there was such a thing. So Jeeps, now Jeeps are interesting. Jeeps, of course, were invented here, but the whole thing about them was that it became an issue of a small company did it, and then a larger company came along and told the government, we can do way more and produce way more. And of course, the government, there's fairness, and there's, I have an entire war to win. So they gave the contracts mostly to the larger companies. But the Jeep will end up fighting all over the world, including uh, the Soviet Union, what was before Russia, the, the, our great ally. I know that sounds kind of strange. Our great ally, the Soviet Union, will drive jeeps all up and down the Eastern Front. They will become a key to victory, and uh, they will. And it's a remarkable contribution. But you also have to see the totality of Pennsylvania. I mean, now that we don't have as many steel mills, the sheer industrial might of Pennsylvania during World War II is absolutely critical to victory. It's we can't. I don't think we can imagine what those days were like. And so Pennsylvania, when, when I talked about World War II, yes, I did talk about, we don't have the units, but I try to talk about very heroic Pennsylvanians, because they're still Pennsylvanians, even they're not in Pennsylvania yet. I also tried to talk about the totality of society, because a victory for America in World War II was the arsenal of democracy. The arsenal of democracy, a lot of it was Pennsylvania. The, the industry of the state was just critical to the 20th century wars as it would be during the American Civil War. And Pennsylvania had, as one of its great contributions to American military history the whole way through, uh, past the colonial period, of course, this, this ability to produce the things of war that are necessary for, for men to wage war. Uh, the factories in the Pittsburgh area, uh, the coal mines uh, in uh, Schuylkill County, which provided the raw materials uh, for the factories and, and for the steamships and for the railroads. Uh, uh, Dauphin County and uh, Lehigh County and Northampton County with all the steel mills and uh, all the, the factories that are in the Philadelphia area. And as mentioned, the, the naval shipyard in Philadelphia. There was also briefly one in the Pittsburgh area too. It could go down the Ohio. This state had an immense industrial capacity for a great percentage of the country's history. And we were very important in winning the nation's wars. And one thing that we try to stress in the book is that, uh, as many authors these days are trying to argue about military history, it isn't just about drums and trumpets and battles and campaigns and great leaders. It's about the common people working at home in the factories, producing the instruments, producing the raw materials necessary to win wars. Uh, and we wanted to put some time into that and, on, and into the home fronts throughout the various wars as well to provide a more holistic picture of Pennsylvania war. Well, when people write about the Civil War, they always write about Gettysburg and uh, that as Pennsylvania's role. But if you were in Pittsburgh, how, how pivotal was Pittsburgh to the Civil War? I mean, there were no battles nearby. Absolutely critical, Brian, because of the Allegheny Arsenal uh, and again because of some of the ships that were built there that were floated down the Ohio, later joining the Mississippi flotillas. Uh, 
large numbers of regiments marched out of Pittsburgh, some of them entirely ethnic German, uh, some regiments that were half Irish. Uh, so the manpower, the industrial capacity, uh, and the enthusiasm for the Union. Pittsburgh was a very Republican town uh, back during the 1860s, and uh, that's only going to change over time. So there's a great deal of support that Lincoln needed. And we need to remember that during uh, the wars of the United States and uh, Pennsylvania is a, a microcosm of this, the people have to support the government. And it's one of the uh, characteristics of democracies at war. The people's support is itself a means to achieve the ends of policy. And it's very important that Pennsylvania was an ardent supporter of almost all the country's wars. And we had our objectors, which we write about. Uh, there were those that didn't believe, even during the Civil War, that it was a just war. Uh, and this would continue throughout uh, the, the, the Commonwealth's history. But the majority of, America, of Pennsylvania citizens would believe that the wars were just, they needed to be fought, they needed to be supported, and uh, they would do so both in the factories, uh, in the kitchens at home, raising children, uh, and ensuring that the men could go off to fight. And uh, so we see this, this, this story going through the history of the state in which the home front and the battlefront are connected with so on, the politics. On the theme of arsenal democracy, Barbara, you wrote about the War of 1812, right? Yes. And uh, you write in here that uh, the fleet for the Battle of uh, Lake Erie was built in Erie. And you say it would be hard to exaggerate the difficulties of building a fleet in this area. The area was a wilderness, the only resource in abundance, wood for the ship's hulls. It had none of the resources needed to make iron fittings, naval guns, and sails. The frontier had few skilled craftsmen. Instead, they were brought in from Philadelphia. Well, why build a shipyard in Erie if there was nothing there? Well, you want to control the Great Lakes. Now, you're not getting a fleet to go down the um, British-controlled waters <laughs> down to get to the Great Lakes. So if you've gone to rest control, and really, we don't talk about, I would say the Battle of Lake Erie is one of the decisive naval battles in American history. If you want to control the Great Lakes, you need ships. And if you can't get them there, and you're an American, for God's sake, right, what do you do? Build, Build them there. Them there. I mean, it sounds insane, but there isn't a lot of options. You can't get a ship there. Now, the British, of course, have ships there because they control most of the waters. You could, at the time, get a ship from the ocean down the St. Lawrence to, to the Great Lakes? Well, the, the, the British fleet on the Great Lakes was constructed primarily in Canada. Hmm. Yes. There were some ocean-going vessels, the smaller ones, that you could squeak through, but not very many. Almost all of them had been constructed on the British shores in the British ports up in, in Canada. So these were ships yes. designed to be built in Erie and spend their lives in the Great Lakes. Yeah, they weren't. They weren't going to go. They were mo mainly. They were well. They were very effective ships, but the British. The reason the comparison, of course, the British had more resources because they had more towns, and their settlements were more gathered around the Great Lakes. They, of course, also built it. With more, with more resources and more technicians they could get in. I guess you'd say really more like skilled. We would say technicians, skilled artisans. But really, there's nothing there. <laughs> Whereas uh, we burnt York, which is Toronto in War of 1812. There's lots around the lake there. There's very little past a certain point, Niagara, when you go out into the wilderness of Pennsylvania. You are building it. I mean, there are some settlements. 
the British actually had Royal Navy personnel that yes. they brought in to assist uh, specifically with uh, fleet building and maintenance and operations on the Great Lakes. So they have the inherent advantage of the Great Royal Navy, which of course rules the waves at that time, and they bring them into the Great Lakes area to you know, ensure that uh, the British will control these, these, these waters. It doesn't work. Uh, ultimately, because of some actions that occur off the coast of Lake Erie, as, as Barb has written, uh, the, the control at least of Lake Erie and other parts of the Great Lakes will shift over to the Americans. It was absolutely critical for uh, the War of 1812's outcome. What should people know about the Battle of Lake Erie? Um, I think they need to know that it is one of the most decisive American naval battles that ever occurred. I think it's very central. When I teach, I teach military history before and after 1900 at, at my university and I'm Army and so I'm not, the Navy's perhaps not my specialty. Did I say that diplomatically enough? <laughs> anyway, and, uh, but what strikes you about the, the Battle of Lake Erie, and it's very hard to try to, I try to convey a little bit in that book, is the absolute essential role the Navy plays. We never talk about that enough in my book. We're all very obsessed. Maybe the Army makes a better movie or something. But the Navy, for example, by winning that battle, and you're saying, well, it was really hard to build those ships. What were there? There were maybe a dozen ships we built. We control the Great Lakes, which means you control, you have access to large areas of Canada, and you control most of the heartland of the United States. But other than that, it wasn't important. So Americans think, wow, to win a victory, we need a lot of ground troops. And that is true when you want to hold ground. But strategically, when you think strategically about controlling an area, you have to think lines of communications, rivers, and lakes. So for all the money and time you put into something else, this was just some ships you built that were commanded by someone who had what you needed in naval. Oliver Hazard Perry understood you needed to command in a very aggressive and bold way, and he did, and we control the entire Midwest. It's a strategic level victory because of the control of the lakes that will occur after the British fleet is swept off of Lake Erie. And this fundamentally alters the balance of power between Canada and the northern portion of the United States. So it's a, it's, it's a critical victory, uh, one of, of the few bona fide American victories in this short war, uh, a war which we got the worst of. Uh, and, and, you know, to continue to answer your question, Brian, I would say that Americans need to know that Pennsylvania's contribution uh, in the success of the Battle of Lake Erie was a strategic uh, decisive point in, in the entirety of the War of 1812. It was a bright spot, and the control of the lakes, as, as Barb indicated, was absolutely critical. How did the weak little United States beat the British Navy in a naval battle? Well, I mean, that's always st stunning. Um, like we had a, what few bright spots we had, and there are very few and far between in the War of 1812, um, was the Navy. In fact, the uh, United States Navy did manage to beat the British on one-to-one -one in sea battles. And I always teach, when I teach that, I show the London Times the next day was hysterical. How could they do this? Let me try to explain this. The Royal Navy is the New England Patriots. The United States, anything at this time, is a very good high school football team <laughs> that might make the state champions. 
Is that correct? Uh, I'd give that. That's that's a fair assessment. So I meant that's what we're talking here. Whenever we did anything, particularly naval, there is nothing like the Royal Navy. Oddly enough, they don't always have the best ships, but they have a culture of aggressiveness and well-trained officers that refuse to accept defeat and are not allowed to accept defeat. So our beating of what little highlights we had in that war were the United States Navy somehow inculcated and incorporated some of that culture and made very good ships. When we made ships, we didn't make a lot, but we made very good ones and managed to take it one-on-one -on -one to the British Navy and beat them. But the reason why Lake Erie is more important in that story is all they did was after they got beat up by us, they took the entire Royal Navy and they parked it on the East Coast and they stopped them from coming out. But so there's no real strategic victory. I'm sure everyone felt good and had a great day and was excited. The naval strategic victory is Lake Erie. That was a feel-good story. Um, where do you teach? I teach at the University of Central Florida. How long have you taught there? I have taught there seven years. What classes do you teach? I teach military history before and after 1900. Um, we, we have it divided there, thank God. We didn't have it divided at Penn State. I still don't know how they did it. Um, Civil War, I teach oral history. I am the coordinator of the Veterans History, history Project where we record, uh, the, we make oral histories of veterans from the Central Florida region. And I also teach uh, historical methods in graduate courses and I've got this new interest in World War I. And Chris, what do you do when you're not writing books? I'm a professor of history and the Eisenhower Chair uh, of National Security at the Army War College in Carlisle. And uh, I teach national security policy and strategy, theory of war and strategy, uh, civil war electives during our elective period, and I lead a lot of staff rides on the battlefields. Who attends the Army War College? Primarily lieutenant colonels and colonels uh, in the United States Army and uh, the Army Reserve and National Guard. We have some sister service uh, officers from the Marines and the Navy and the Air Force as well. And then we have uh, a percentage of uh, foreign officers who attend uh, the 10-month course uh, from our allies. And uh, they are part of every seminar uh, at the Army War College as well. What does it mean to be the Eisenhower Professor? Well, it, it's, it's a, uh, a wonderful title uh, that uh, uh, gives me a couple privileges uh, among them. Uh, is a very, very nice chair that I actually get to keep in my office. So oh, it's the an actual chair. It's an actual chair. It's a chair. The War College actually gives us a chair, which we'll get to keep um, until we retire. And uh, I also will have the privilege of reviewing uh, the award-nominated uh, papers by the students uh, going forward. So uh, uh, those are the privileges that, that the chair conveys, but it is quite an honor to have it. Do you have to be an Eisenhower expert? To uh, no, you don't. Uh, it's it's uh, uh, given to generally a member of my department, National Security and Strategy, uh, as a, essentially a, a reward for, for service and, and for uh, excellence in teaching and publications. Well, in continuing to jump around through your book and Pennsylvania history, I want to go back to the Revolutionary War and um, talk about a, a gentleman you write about. In Chester County, the chief loyalist bandit was one James Fitzpatrick. And you write that since there was little support for the revolution in Chester County, Fitzpatrick had something of the reputation of a local hero. He was known for his bravado, walking through areas of patriot sentiment in broad daylight and even attending meetings where people were planning to capture him. You have to understand the thing about 
Pennsylvania, again, we're talking about a very more typical state in America, is that you had, like all insurgencies, and we sometimes need to think about the revolution as an insurgency, you have loyalists, you have patriots slash Whigs, and you had neutrals. There are a lot of neutrals in Pennsylvania. So people, there is, during the war, we think, oh, well, these are great. George Washington, Alexander Hamilton, the musical. We see the war in very conventional terms. But one of the things you read in Pennsylvania is there is a mini-civil war going on in the communities because you have people of different allegiances. And he's just one example, and there are many in that section. And the fact that when we talk about Pennsylvania and we think about the revolution, there are areas the British control, just like in modern insurgencies, and there's areas what they would call the insurgents control. And when the insurgents control it and have a shadow government, the loyalists become the rebels, and they become chased as bandits or outlaws or traitors or whatever you want to call them. And there's enormous, a lot of that going on in Pennsylvania. It's, it's not unique to our state either. Uh, with some exceptions in New England, you will see this throughout the American Revolution and throughout the colonies uh, where state fights state within. It becomes uh, truly a, uh, an internecine conflict. Neighbors are fighting neighbors. Certain counties are more patriots, certain are more loyalists. And this is actually part of the nature uh, of an insurgency uh, and, and a rebellion, as, as we teach at the War College. This is part of the nature of that kind of warfare. And it wouldn't matter if it, if it was in Pennsylvania or South Carolina, where it also occurred, and it was even bloodier down in the South uh, in, in, in this regard. Uh, but uh, this, this is very typical for the American Revolution. We need to remember the Revolution not just as Patriot Americans versus British soldiers and mercenary uh, Hessians. It's that, but it's also loyalist Americans in Pennsylvania and other states who are allying with their, the British and with, with the, uh, the Hessians against their Patriot neighbors. Uh, and uh, it can get very ugly very quickly, especially in, in more lawless areas that are far, further away from the cities and uh, where the main field armies are not operating. Well, you also have to remember neutrals. And everyone always forgets those people. To me, that's why the British lost. They never, they never, I mean, everyone was a, a patriot or loyalist. This happens all the time in insurgencies. People forget the neutrals. The because there's sitters. a lot of neutrals here in Pennsylvania. Everyone th thinks people were enthusiastic one way or the other. Most people just wanted their life to go on and their farm, Correct. and they weren't very aware and didn't care. Whoever paid the best and most gold got the supplies from the neutrals. And this is part of the whole Valley Forge story. Uh, but uh, this, again, is going to happen up and down the eastern seaboard. And Pennsylvania is not unique in that regard. We probably had a slightly higher percentage of neutrals yes. uh, than, than other uh, colonies in rebellion. Uh, the interesting thing about fence sitters and neutrals and insurgencies, whether it be the American Revolution or whether it be anything uh, uh, more recent, uh, the, the force, whether it be the, the formal insurgency force or whether it be the counterinsurgent force, the government force, if you will, whichever of those two can control the fence sitters or the neutrals, 
give them security, and allow them to more or less lead their lives the way they wish, they're going to have the advantage strategically. And that becomes an issue. Was it possible to do that, to just not take sides during the Revolutionary yes, War and live your whole life? Yes, possible. How do you do that? Unless they put it in your face and forced you not to be neutral. The worst thing you can do is say to a neutral, you have to pick sides. Mm -hmm. And, well, one of the things, I'll give you a perfect example, we're very focused on Valley Forge and Princeton Battlefield and all of these other battlefields. Really, a lot of things happened on the frontier that are very key because the British kind of went into their handbook and said, let's use the Native Americans. They're very good. They know the woods. Hoorah. The problem is, in the world, in the frontier, you probably had a fairly high percentage of neutrals. Now, Native Americans, um, when they assisted them, Sometimes they weren't very discerning about which side the local population might be on, whether they might be loyalists or patriots or neutrals. And there's nothing that'll get Americans worked up more than having Native Americans at your side um, because they see this as their existential threat, which is true. And so that whole idea, which thinks, oh, well, I'll get this military victory, in many ways is an insurgency failure because you work up the population against you. Even people who really didn't care, you know, they hadn't read common sense. To them, common sense was getting their crops in. <laughs> the, that's a great point that, that Barb's making, and we bring this up in the, the first half of the book, in the colonial chapters and through the revolutionary chapter. Um, and, and Bill uh, deserves a great deal of credit for this because he knew a great deal about the plight of the Native Americans in the early history of the colony they are a major player in the colonial history of, of, of what will become Pennsylvania. And this continues into the Revolutionary War. They have their own agency, just as uh, the uh, Patriots and uh, as the British do, and if you take it to the French and Indian War as the French do, they are trying to achieve their own set of objectives as the Patriots and as the British and uh, as are the various uh, colonial assemblies are. Uh, and again, we tried to, 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 to paint a, the, the accuracy of the complex picture of warfare on the frontier in which the American Indians were not just pawns because they most certainly were not. And in fact, may have uh, uh, you know, preempted the entire French and Indian War uh, with uh, the tomahawking of, uh, of uh, Jumonville in, in the Glen uh, right as Washington is talking to this captured French officer after having ambushed him and, and his men. Uh, and it was an Indian who tomahawked this officer, which then Washington got the blame for and had to uh, essentially admit guilt uh, in, a, in a, a, um, um, a statement that was written in French, which he uh, may or may not have understood. And uh, that was the spark. So they actually played a very important role, the Native Americans did, and uh, uh, had their own set of policy objectives. Uh, and we need to keep that in mind. How did the different Indian tribes and nations decide who to ally themselves with? Well, it was, it was based very much on interests and which side, whether it be uh, the British and the colonists in the, the colonial wars or whether it be the patriots or the British in the Revolutionary War, it depended on their interests for their individual Indian nation. And we're talking the Iroquois, often political decisions were made as a league and not by individual tribe, though the, the, uh, the Confederacy will split up during the Revolution, uh, which was a fracturing of that, 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 uh, that earlier unity among the various nations of the Six Nations. 
but it was based on, on their interests, which in turn were based on proximity to colonial expansion, uh, proximity to British uh, supply depots and forts, uh, uh, threats that they perceived uh, could be inherent from either the Patriots or, or the British, or in the case of the French uh, and the British uh, in, the, in, the, uh, in the earlier wars, uh, which side is going to give them more supplies and more gifts, as they were called, uh, and uh, also old grudges, old grudges, old blood feuds, uh, which tribes that were your ancestral enemies allied with the other side. All of these would go into the decision-making of the Native Americans. So a lot of it was Indians against Indians? There was a great deal of Indian against Indian uh, fighting uh, during especially the colonial wars. I want In the time we have left, I want to ask about a couple of things. Um, Lord Dunmore's War, uh, is that your area? There's a, a thing here that says Virginia was forbidden to create new counties by the British Crown. They instead formed the District of West Augusta with its seat at Pittsburgh, which to all intents and purposes fun functioned as a county. They rechristened Fort Pitt Fort Dunmore. So this is West Virginia trying to snatch from Pennsylvania it, land? It's actually Virginia. Virginia yeah. had oh, controls. Virginia controls, if you, okay, you know how you see Virginia now, mm -hmm. and of course you think to yourself, well, of course it's West Virginia and Virginia at once, but actually Virginia kind of went like, claimed all the <laughs> way out, and one of the things that Washington did as a surveyor was he worked, I think, was it for Lord Fa Fairfax? Correct. He worked for Lord Fairfax, and they were always trying to prove that that Virginia goes practically, I think, to the Mississippi or something, doesn't it? <laughs> they, they tried to claim very far west into what's modern-day Tennessee, uh, and they claimed the entire western part of what will become the state of Pennsylvania. And again, illustrating feuds among earlier colonies, later states, about land claims. Uh, and uh, part of the reason that there were treaties with Indians, in fact, in the colonial period was to uh, try to uh, preempt settlement by other colonies, especially Connecticut, uh, from taking claims in, in what was perceived to be Pennsylvanian land. So this is just in a series of, of, uh, of, of disputes among the colonies and, and the later states. That's another one that's about the, the border war with Connecticut. Can you talk about that in a couple minutes? I think it was pretty typical. I mean, Connecticut thought that there wasn't a defined border per se. And Connecticut disputed, and Connecticut's people did squatting, came over, and to control this area of Pennsylvania, and Pennsylvania said no. And that's all it really was. I mean, remember, there's no, you don't have your Garmin. I mean, the, 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 the borders have usually been drawn in Britain by the king, who like does things like, yeah, excuse me, Pitt, here's Pennsylvania, it's yours. And he has a picture of it, and when you come on the ground, that isn't a very solid border. And the same thing for Virginia and everyone else. Everyone gets these grants. You're told this is your territory and they might overlap. Or there might be dispute about where that actual line is. Where's the limit? Yes. So they don't have it. And the thing about America, I always have to explain this to my students, every colony has its own military force. Until the French and Indian War, there's no British military or real British authority, except at customs, enforcing anything. It's just a free-for-all. And the person with the most guns or who can control it keeps it. It's about power. 
Well, we're almost done. In the back of your book, you have a, a list of sites and monuments and memorials. Uh, if Leaving out Independence Hall and Gettysburg and the obvious ones, what are the, the do not miss places in Pennsylvania for people interested in this? Well, that's a great question. Uh, I think that if you have the time, it's definitely worth a visit to Fort Ligonier. Uh, that is a wonderful historical site uh, and uh, uh, nearby Bushy Run Battlefield, which is often neglected. Uh, I think that would be a wonderful day trip for many folks. Uh, I would definitely recommend uh, that uh, uh, Pennsylvanians walk through their own communities and actually just go to their local historical societies as well and uh, learn about their local military history. It's, it's there, and we have many fine historical societies scattered throughout this state, uh, some of them nationally recognized. So I would recommend that as well. Uh, and if I do have to put in a plug, I'd be remiss if I didn't, uh, to uh, spend as much time as you possibly can down at Gettysburg. It is truly a gem. Uh, and uh, we, we do also spend a great deal of time on the American Civil War. A lot of these themes that we've discussed here are brought out in those chapters as well and, and brought into even greater fruition. And Barbara, we have about a minute left. What are the must-see sites for you? I'll be honest, I think it's, I would go to the Pennsylvania Military Museum in Bowlesburg. Um, for one thing, um, it's, I imagine there are much flashier museums, but I'm telling you right now, Americans do not appreciate World War I. They do not understand its heritage. That is, that's the saddest thing I can think of. Particularly since the 28th Infantry Division was so important, it still lives, it still serves the, the state. Its members are in every community, and I just wish people would appreciate the military history all around them. Well, that'll have to be the last word. We've been speaking with Barbara Gannon and Christian Keller. They are the authors of this book, Pennsylvania, A Military History. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you, Brian. You've been listening to a podcast of PA Books, a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. We'd like to hear from you. Our email address is pabooks at pcntv.com. Like us on Facebook to learn more about PA Books.